Welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio, the podcast where marketing leaders inside and outside the sciences share their creative ideas and practical approaches to increasing your marketing ROI. Here's your host, Chris Connor. Hello again, and thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. We all know that innovation is essential to our industry. It's also important to you as an individual. Being able to persuade your manager or your team to go along with your innovative ideas is a valuable skill. For some businesses, not keeping up with the pace of innovation can have consequences they might not have thought of. That's what I learned in this episode. So stick around. You don't want to miss it. Let me tell you a little something about our sponsor. The Association of Commercial Professionals, Life Sciences, was founded to help people like you with career development and to connect you to like-minded sales and marketing pros in our industry. The 2016 annual meeting will take place in Philadelphia on October 19th through 21st. Adrian Pensock, today's guest, is the co-chair of the program team, which will give you an idea of the caliber of content you can expect at the meeting. The program team is developing customer panels, a marketing boot camp, training on insight selling, a session on the changing sales environment and what that means for both marketing and sales, as well as numerous skill sessions to up your game. Go to acp-ls.org slash annual meeting for more information. Okay, let's jump into it. I'm excited about our very special guest today. Adrian Pensak is Vice President of Global Business Development for Early Phase Services at Icon Clinical Research. And today we're going to talk about innovation, why it's important for you as an individual and your career, but also um, how it applies to um, your business. So Adrian, welcome to Life Science Marketing Radio. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much, Chris. Great to be here. You did not start out in the life sciences, so I think your career is particularly unusual and interesting. Tell the listener a little bit about your first job out of college and, and what you were doing there. Sure. Uh, I started as a software engineer, got into software development, so I actually worked for a government contractor and was developing software that used STARS as navigation for guided missiles, so a little bit different than the life sciences space. Quite a bit. And then um, tell me a little bit more about that. So what was what was kind of the, the big event at that in that position? So there I was uh, developing software, again, as I mentioned, to uh, help drive guided missiles. And within that role, uh, we obviously had a procurement group within the within the organization. And so as I was looking at my career and reading the tech magazines back in the day, a buddy and I were always talking about this, this small little company that had this relational database called Oracle. And uh, I happened to be chatting with one of my buddies in the procurement group and saying that they were just struggling. They had this flat file that they used to try to track all the things they were ordering. You know, they were getting beaten up by other groups because they couldn't order in time or fast enough. And so over a couple conversations, I started reading, you know, what the relational database did, how it worked and thought it could be a great solution for, for that team, for that group. Uh, I spoke to my boss and said, hey, I think that this would be a good fit for them. Uh, I don't know much about Oracle or relational databases, but with my programming background, I'm sure I could help them out. 
And so with his support, put together a business plan for the procurement group, uh, got his buy-in to help me present it, and that manager uh, bought into it and said, that sounds exactly like what we need. And so with a little bit of push from our side, a little bit of pull from that side, was able to move into a software development relational database mode uh, of something that I never did before. <laughs> nice. And then at some point you actually went to Oracle, right? How did that happen? So that was uh, a bit over time. So my first foray into relational databases and Oracle was in that role. And from there, that actually allowed me to move to a company that got me into the life sciences space. That was a small company that developed, at that time, uh, safety systems, clinical trials systems, and clinical data management systems. So the three core uh, tools that are used in, our, in, in developing clinical trials. And so I moved to that company, uh, was responsible for trial management and developing that software. And that was a smaller company. So after a couple of years there, I started realizing that, you know, we're, and we were developing in Oracle and said, boy, we're doing a lot of work in Oracle. What a great company. Wouldn't it be good to, to work for Oracle? And that's when I started putting my feelers out for trying to get into Oracle, trying to figure out what opportunities there were in Oracle. And again, I was focused on life sciences now, and I thought, well, they don't really have a presence. So Oracle, the technology itself, was, was the appealing part. And, uh, you know, in your career, if you're lucky, there's maybe one or two times where the stars align, and this happened to be one of them. I happened to be talking to a colleague who happened to have a headhunter who happened to get him an interview, and the interview was for uh, this product that they were trying to develop for, at the time, was uh, Syntex or Roche Biosciences. So they were actually trying to code and develop a data, what in essence was a, a data management tool for them. And so, it, again, the stars aligned, my background in technology, in developing relational databases, and one of the unique things of having life sciences experience uh, was a perfect fit. And so I was able to get a job at Oracle with, with that background and, and those ties together. So I have to ask, was that in Redwood City? No, uh, it's actually funny because it was in New Jersey. Okay. Uh, but when I got the brochure, when they hired me, they actually sent me you know, all the things that they have. They have volleyball courts and a gym and all these things. And I thought, wow, what a great time to get my, you know, to get in shape and do all these things. <laughs> and I show up my first day at, at the office and I said, wait a minute, you only have two floors in this building. Where's the gym? And, and I said, oh, that's in Redwood Shores. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what they have now because this is just a bit of an aside. I was there earlier this week for a, another meeting. <laughs> And so Larry Ellison's America's Cup yacht is sitting in the pond outside the building, and the mast is taller than the 12-story building it's sitting next to. Oh, my. Well, I, I follow them a bit because I used to be into sailing. So Yeah, me too. So <laughs> that blew me away. Um, all right. Your boss was supportive. when you uh, Your first boss, when you were suggested building that database for procurement, and, and that was a novel idea at the time. What made him a good mentor, and, and what did you learn from that? Well, that's a great question, Chris, because I think that's the question that we all, as senior folks in organizations, should be asking ourselves. You know, what is it that makes somebody a good manager, a good mentor? And I think that's the gap in, in, in our world where we're so busy with deliverables and margins and, and other things where – you know, you'll hear the surveys out there say the number one reason people leave jobs is because of their manager. 
so your question is very, uh, very relevant because at that time he was my first manager and to this day probably one of the better ones where I always felt like he had my best interest in mind. So uh, day-to-day working, always available, day-to-day guidance, day-to-day, uh, how do I do this or where should I be thinking, looking. You know, again, I mentioned I used to read some of those techie magazines and I would share some things that I read or heard. And that's kind of how the proposal to build this procurement relational database came about because I was brainstorming with my buddies. We were talking and I sort of threw out something there and he said, well, how would you do it? And just that question alone, I think, triggered me to say, hmm, I would do this. And I started trying to understand why that relational database would do things and alert and, and track and manage and all the things that, that offered to the needs of the procurement. Now, granted, I, I put this plan together based on input from the people who worked in that group and based on my limited knowledge of, of relational databases. So it was sort of an interesting business plan without maybe the right detail but it was strong enough and so the once I had that plan my manager actually sat down with me and challenged me and said what about this and helped me fill some of the gaps and then once I had that together actually helped present it on my behalf so he got me the door or opened the door for me to speak to the other the manager of that group or that team to say hey he's got an idea why don't you listen so those are the types of things that I think managers today maybe are too busy and a lot in sales in particular, right? Sales and marketing is all about how do we make the money? How do we get the business? Uh, So sometimes we forget about what's important to those people. We all talk about making sure we keep people and retain and and keep the best people. But sometimes we, we keep the eye on the sales ball versus the overall how do we help these salespeople be more successful. Right. And when you say a lot of managers are concerned about keeping people my impression is, and I, I think you'll agree, is many of them don't want to lose a good person. And do you think that someone like that manager who actually encourages you to do more, I can imagine they might attract more good talent. They shouldn't have to worry about losing you because everybody else will want to work for them. Is that crazy? Well, it's a tough call. If you have, so for example, in that situation, um, he helped me get the next job in my career. He was an enabler there. Yeah, did he have to then hire, replace me, and, and do extra work because he lost somebody that he could count on? Sure. But I think when you're focused on the right things, and even in any organization, the goal is, yeah, you will lose that person. Now, will they get promoted? Will they be able to take your job? Will they be able to do more? That's what everybody says they do, but I think in reality, um, you know, my experience is that that's, that's not always the case. I think if you asked any manager and said, hey, are you doing everything you can to get that person that works for you to be able to do your job and succession plans and all these things, I don't always think that, I think they may say that, but I'm not sure their actions speak that way. So this guy actually did that, and, and I try to emulate that as well to say, hey, how can I make you better? You know, initially achieving your target, giving you experience to be managerial, to, to take on certain responsibilities, so I think putting your money where your mouth is is, is the key here. Right. It's, it's sort of a mindset of abundance as opposed to scarcity of possibilities. But um, how – so, Adrian, how do you sell an innovative idea to your management? How do you make your case when you've got something like that that you want to try that's new? Well, I'll tell you the same thing I tell most people that when they're hiring me and in my job, I don't sell. 
right? And then you heard that pause, and that pause was intentional. Uh-huh. I, was, I was being hired for running North America for a mid-sized CRO, and I'm in the final interview. I'm in the office with the CEO, and he says, okay, you know, I need you to do this and this. And I said, well, uh, you know I don't sell, right? And I paused, and all I could see is his eyes looking at me, and they was all confused. And he started saying, wait a minute, I'm hiring you to do this. That's what we're all about is selling. And I said, I really don't sell. I provide value. Right? So that's the net net. That's an easy statement to say. But the tough thing is to translate that statement into what's real. So, so my success in selling tools and other things and technologies is not about what you're selling. It's not about the technology. It's how you apply that. It's how you use that. And what's the true value? My biggest pet peeve is that word value is overused. Uh, and I'm using it now, so I laugh at myself. But everybody's, oh, we need value. Hey, we're selling value, right? And everybody can say that. But then when you, the, the challenge is to define that. Yes. And I think that's what I've had good success with is because I understand the business, because I understand technology coming from a software engineering background, I can meld the two where I understand how technology works, but I can also articulate that to the users and the managers and the people that have the budgets to say, this is why it's useful. This is how you're, we're going to use it when we deliver your study, or this is how the benefit comes across to you. And at the end of the day, it's always about what is that, what is that savings to me? Is that time, money, both? How do I do that? Nice. Yeah. That, that's a, a, a brilliant explanation of the gap and, and, the need to be able to actually articulate the value and, and what you're going to do for somebody and rather than be more product or service focused in the sense of here's all the things that this thing does. That is, I think in my opinion, the biggest challenge is that we talk about value, but we do not connect the dots for the, for the sponsor. I can tell you, we go to many, many meetings and bid defenses and, and most of the time they will ask, we want to hear about your innovation. We want to hear about how, how you leverage technology. And then at the end of the day, they say, well, what does that mean to me? That's great, but well, I don't want to pay extra. And so we have to connect the dots and say, well, maybe you're not paying extra because it's how we do things, but the value you get is this, or you can make better decisions on your data. And as much as we want the work, we'll actually say, listen, if you have this information, you might be able to kill a study sooner. And nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to say it out loud. But that's that's significant money. If you know today, because of your data, you can stop and make key decisions, then that's what the industry is trying to go to. Nice. So that's a good uh, that's a good place to shift gears um, a little bit towards innovation in the life sciences. So how is uh, the digital revolution changing things in the life science services sector? Uh, I have to pause because there are a number of, of thoughts that come to mind when you ask that question. I think inevitably the digital revolution is changing everything, right? We see that in, in every shape or form of what we do on a daily basis. I think our industry in particular uh, is has been fairly slow. I can give you the example of data management. I was doing data management in character mode 20 years ago, and today we're still doing paper trials in the world. So it's taken us 15, 20 years to get to where we finally are doing a lot or most of the studies in, in an electronic format. So our, our industry in particular is not the first to be on the bleeding edge. But I think that we're getting there. We're starting to see that we need it. Clients are all asking us what is innovative about how you do things, what are you doing. You see that uh, us and other CROs are coming out with 
ways to look at data, ways to leverage technology. I think a big thing that uh, we're starting to see and do is leverage things that are out there. So you can hear about the partnership that we're doing with IBM Watson where they have a very powerful tool that can do a lot of processing faster than anybody, but it doesn't understand our world. So we're basically educating, teaching that machine about our industry so it can ask better questions and find better data and, and tie the patients, which is our, our first concern, with the doctors, with the studies, with the research, and, and connect all these dots. So I think that's where the digital revolution is going to play the biggest role, is connecting all these disparate components to what are essential uh, things to run our trials. Nice. I, I'm just kind of curious about training Watson and and thinking about your current processes, which I don't know a lot in detail, but you might even learn, Watson might even tell you that there are some things you don't even need to do because is that possible? Uh, it, it could be. I think, you know, I don't want to get into too much detail about yeah. specific technology, but it, it's getting an answer to a question could be positive and shows you the way. It could be negative and shows you which way not to go. Right. So I think it can answer both of those questions, absolutely. But I think that there are, you know, what we're seeing now, and we're finally starting to accept a little bit, is that the universe is huge. And there's a lot of things out there. So I mentioned IBM Watson. You look at Google. You look at some of these other technologies that are out there. And there's no reason why our industry can't take advantage of them. And we're just starting to figure out, hey, we can do that. How do we best do that? And I think that's what – those are sort of the doors that are opening now with looking at some of these technologies and saying they do something well. How do we apply that to what we're doing? What questions can they answer for us? What data can they find and help us to navigate and get answers to and be able to access patients better, uh, provide data information to patients. All our patients now are very educated. They're getting information. You know, one of the big challenges in our industry is how do patients find, you know, I have a, a cousin with a bad, uh, rare cancer, and they want to, they have no other options. How do they find who's doing these studies? So how do we connect patients with research and so forth. So there's a lot of moving parts, but I think the digital age here is, is enabling some of these conversations to happen where before people just had no idea. Right. No, that's, that's really interesting. Adrian, I want to wrap up with this. So given that uh, the industry is typically very cautious, what do you see happening in the future that companies in life sciences and particularly in the services sector need to get ready for? That's a great question, and I love that because that's sort of something I've been talking about for a long time, which is our industry, listen, we have regulatory constraints. We have to put patient care number one, and we do that. The problem is we're very cautious, and we have scrutiny by the regulatory agencies, so we have to be careful. That being said, we also have to trust that technology is doing things right, doing them well. Uh, I think that we've been very slow in our industry to take advantage of some of these technologies and digital uh, tools that we have at our, at our access, but I think that my prediction is within five to seven years, the switch is going to flip. So we're getting better now. We're you know, looking at Google. We're talking, we have meetings with Google. We're talking with uh, IBM. We're talking with all these companies that do things well. But what's going to happen is you have the millennials who are coming up, and you have a younger generation that grew up on this. Right? I have a, a young son who you know, knows how to use an iPad and iPhone better than you know, your average adult. 
So these people, these kids are growing up and they have technology. And so my prediction is that in five to seven years, we're going to, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but there's going to be a switch, a catalyst that happens where these folks, these young people are going to say, I, I, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would I use paper? Why would I do this inefficient process? Hey, there's a company out there called XYZ who can do this. Why would I reinvent the wheel? And we also are going to have knowledge of that more because, because of the digital communication. So my prediction is five, seven years, the switch is going to flip where we're going to have to be like the other industries and leverage technologies and trust that it does what it says it can do to be able to service the patients, the people out there, uh, and be able to find them, to be able to do research better, and to be able to pair them up with the medications and drugs that, that can help them with quality of life, survival, and all the other things that, that our industry is all about. Right. And it's a talent acquisition challenge as well, right? If if, if the switch happens and you're not ready, um, you're going to have a hard time attracting people to, that want to work in a paper-based environment. Yeah, you're not going to be able to retain or find. So the people that are right now, the companies that are doing some of these innovative things, they're going to be leading edge because the millennials are coming up and you hire them and they're, they're obviously less tolerant, but they, they won't tolerate inefficiency. So in other words, if you hire them and say, well, I need you to do this job, and it, well, this is boring. I want to do this. It, it, that doesn't make any sense. They're going to challenge the status quo, where today people come in and you kind of do your job, you figure out how to get there. These folks are coming in, these young people, and they're going to say, there's a better way. I'm going to go to you know, this other company because they're, they're more leaders. They want to do technology. I mean, even today, you look at uh, in the early days of technology companies in and, and, uh, and California, right? You know, oh, we have pool tables. We can come in a T-shirt. They change the norm. And I think that's the same thing that's going to happen now. We're changing the norm of how we work. We want, to, we want these people to be creative. We don't want to stifle them and say, this is our process, you do it. Hey, how can we do it better? Come with new ideas. And they're coming with tons of ideas. I mean, you have uh, 10-year-olds who are coming out with apps now. So that generation, the younger generation, just gets it. They want to do things differently. They are creative. And they don't know that there's any, any, any bars that are set that they can't move. So I think the companies that embrace that and provide an environment for these for uh, these sort of folks to thrive will be the leaders. And the folks who say, well, we're just going to keep going along because we're afraid of regulatory, we're afraid of change. Uh, one, it's going to be hard to find people that want to work for you, and it's going to be very hard to keep them because they're going to say, hey, this is not what, what we're about. Right. And th these kids, not only have they grown up with a new way of doing things versus the old thing, they're growing up in an environment where the rate of change is different than it was previously. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you probably read the statistics out there, but today on a daily basis, there's more digital data captured than you know, in the previous thousands of years on a daily basis today. So uh, I think that's going to be the way that we need to go. And, and that's tough because I think we're all today, we're, we're bragging about our technology. We're bragging about our innovation. But it's very slow. It takes a long time to get there where, one, the technology is going to be better. There's building blocks. So if you recall, you know, in the day I grew up, we were coding in assembly language, right, zeros and ones. And now we have fancy code that we can do. Now we have GUI. We have all these sort of different things. But the, the coding part is going to be much easier because we can focus on the results. Where do we want to go? What do we want this to do versus the underlying code that was, took six months to develop and test and so forth? We can roll things out much quicker. Uh, coding has libraries, right? In our industry, we have to have standards. So we have to be 21 CFR 11 compliant. So we have 
things that you can do. You build libraries, you validate that once, and then you put functionality and things in place. So there's a lot of things that we can do better as this technology evolves. In general, the building blocks to not have any kind of bars above our heads saying, hey, we can't do that. The sky's the limit now. Beautiful. So, Adrian Pensak, I want to really thank you for taking the time to do this. I think this has been a fantastically interesting and informative interview. It was great to hear about your career and kind of where you see the industry going. So, thank you once again for your time. Uh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. And it's exciting. It's something that I think everybody should be thinking about, but it's a very exciting time for our industry because just as we have, you know, I say today we collect more data on a daily basis than we have in 100 years, today we're changing so much faster. So it's great to be a part of it, and it's a very exciting topic. So uh, good luck and thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. I had a big grin on my face during that whole interview. Adrian has an interesting career story, and of course, he shared some valuable insight about the future. If you like the podcast, as always, please tell two friends or three. I very much appreciate it, and I think they will too. I will talk to you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. 